Hello and happy October, everyone. Welcome back to The Killer Kind. And welcome to the first Halloween episode of the season. I hope you're just as excited as I am. You all know already I've been over this. This is my favorite time of the year. Today's case is one that I wanted to cover really since I even started this podcast. I even actually typed out like a mock episode on this case when I first decided to do it. This is one that has fascinated me for many, many, many years. I don't know if it's the horrific way her body was found or the fact that there were some bizarre things that happened after her death or if it's the fact that no one has ever been charged with the crime. It's honestly terrifying that we've shared this world with someone who did something so horrific and they were just out roaming the streets, likely for years. I genuinely can't even think about it too much or I get like freaked out. And fair warning, this case is a graphic one. I do read through the autopsy report a little bit, so just skip through that part if you think you need to. And also, if you didn't notice by the title of the episode, this is a two-parter. I really just get into the victim's backstory, the murder itself, and then the first part of the investigation in today's episode. But there is just so much more to get into on this one. So join me here next week for part two. But for now, let's get into part one of the horrifying death of the Black Dahlia. Elizabeth Ann Short was born on July 29, 1924 in the Hyde Park area of Boston, Massachusetts. She was the third of five daughters of Cleo Short and Phoebe May Sawyer. In 1927, the Short family relocated to Portland, Maine, before settling down back in Medford in a Boston suburb. Cleo Short built miniature golf courses until the 1929 stock market crash when he lost most of their savings and the family became broke. In 1930, when Elizabeth was just five years old, her father's car was found abandoned on the Charlestown Bridge, and it was assumed he had committed suicide by jumping into the Charles River. Elizabeth's mom moved with her five daughters to a small apartment in Medford and worked as a bookkeeper to support them. Now, from what I understand, Elizabeth had to have lung surgery at just 15 years old due to bronchitis and severe asthma attacks. It was after her surgery that her doctor suggested the family relocate to a milder climate during the winter months to prevent further respiratory problems. There's not many sources that mention Elizabeth's backstory, so this part of her story is from one source alone that I could find, so kind of take that with a grain of salt. But from what I read, Elizabeth's mom sent her to spend the winters in Miami with some family friends, and this went on for three years. Winters in Florida and the rest of the time in Medford. I mean, that's the life I'm trying to live. I'm just saying. (laughs) In her sophomore year, Elizabeth would end up dropping out of Medford High School. It's shortly after that that Elizabeth's life kind of flips upside down. In December of 1942, Elizabeth's mother receives a letter from her husband, who everyone believed had died. It was an apology letter stating that he was in fact alive and had started a new life in California. Elizabeth was 18 years old at the time, and she decided to move to 
Bahio, California to live with her father, who at this point she hadn't seen since she was six years old and who she thought had died. I can't imagine what that actually felt like to get a letter like that from your father. I mean, what a roller coaster of emotions to say the least. Now, with that said, one thing to note here is that it was widely reported that she was an aspiring actress. Now, I kind of have the feeling that she had really wanted out of the area she was in, that maybe she really wanted to live something, you know, somewhere new and exciting, kind of like the Hollywood, like California life. And so when her father came back into the picture and she found out he was living in California, she probably jumped at the opportunity to go. So she goes out west. She goes to live with her dad, who at the time was living and working in the San Francisco Bay Area. The father-daughter happy reunion didn't last very long, however, because by January 1943, she was moving out. Reports claim that the two just argued a lot and didn't get along. Shortly after Elizabeth moves out, she takes a clerk job at the base exchange at Camp Cook, which is now an Air Force base. She essentially worked in a convenience store for service members, and she was featured as the Camp Cook Cutie of the Week in the base publication the month after she started. It was said that after this recognition, the store received a steady increase of business, and she was. She was beautiful. She ended up living with several friends that she had recently met, and she briefly lived with an Army Air Force sergeant who reportedly abused her. Elizabeth ended up leaving the San Francisco area in 1943 and moved to Santa Barbara, which is about two and a half hours north of Los Angeles. On September 23, 1943, at age 19, she got arrested for underage drinking at El Paso Restaurant's Bar, although it was widely reported that she wasn't much of a drinker despite this incident. Her mugshot from that arrest has since become one of the most iconic photographs of Elizabeth Short, besides the most famous crime scene photos. Her mugshot shows how beautiful she was. She had dark, curly hair and piercing blue eyes. She was young and gorgeous, and that's a big part of this case, which we'll get into. It's horrible at the judgment this poor girl received because of the men she was linked to before her death. But again, we'll get into that. That's just a huge part of it. Now, this was the 1940s where women were supposed to stay at home and cook and clean and be the perfect little housewives. She was ridiculed for her dating history, but she was 19. She was in this fun and exciting city. She was doing what many young women would do, just go out and have fun. But the media really judged her for that and pretty much ridiculed her after her death and Again, we'll get into that later. After she was arrested for underage drinking, she ended up staying at the home of an arresting officer, Mary Unkenfer. Unkenfer? I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm sure I'm butchering the crap out of it. But anyways, Mary said, and I'll quote here, she was a very good-looking girl with dark hair and fair skin. She dressed nicely and was a long way from being a barfly. And that comment just tells me that she was trying to say she wasn't some rowdy drunk, even though that's the way it seemed by the arrest report. In a later interview, Mary made a comment that might have jeopardized the case a little bit. She made a comment about a rose tattoo on her left thigh, something that turned out to be a gruesome piece of this case. 
Now, after her arrest, juvenile authorities sent her back to Medford with her mom and sisters, which is kind of bizarre to me, but I'm sure that was just something they could do back then. I mean, she was 19. You would think that she could do what she wanted and when she wanted and didn't need to be sent back to a parent, but either way, she was sent back to Medford. However, She ends up going back to Florida instead of Medford. Whether she went to Medford first or went to Florida first, I'm not quite sure. But either way, she stays in Florida for a while. And while in Florida, Elizabeth met an Army Air Force officer by the name of Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr. I wasn't able to figure out exactly when the two started dating, but Major Gordon was training for deployment to the China-Burma-India Theater of Operations of World War II. Elizabeth told friends that her boyfriend had written a letter to her proposing to her while he was recovering from injuries he had received from a plane crash in India. She excitedly accepted his proposal. However, sadly, Matthew Gordon died in a second plane crash on August 10, 1945, less than a week before the surrender of Japan that ended the war. It was after this that her life kind of really started to go downhill and ultimately led her back to the city where she'd meet her horrific fate. She moved back to the Los Angeles area in July 1946 to visit Army Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, who she knew from back in Florida. Now, I'll say it's unclear what she did from her time when her fiance died up until the time she moved back to California. And it's not even super clear what all she did after she moved back. We do know that she worked as a waitress and rented a room behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard during the last six months of her life. She has been widely described as an aspiring actress, like I mentioned earlier, although she had no known acting jobs. However, she does remind me of a young like Marilyn Monroe, the short, dark, curly hair, young and gorgeous, and a life cut short. So there's definitely a similarity between the two. Weeks leading up to her death, we know she was dating a 25-year-old married salesman named Robert Red Manley. On January 9, 1947, Elizabeth returned home to Los Angeles from a short trip to San Diego with Robert Manley, who later stated that he dropped Elizabeth off at the Biltmore Hotel located on 506 South Grand Avenue in downtown LA. And side note here, I swore I heard one time that it was actually the infamous Cecil Hotel, but when I was researching this case, I didn't see anywhere that said it was the Cecil, except for an article that mentioned that a witness spoke to a reporter or something like that, saying she saw a woman that matched Elizabeth's description in the lobby of the Cecil the day before she was found dead. However, when Elizabeth's picture was released, she didn't identify her as the woman she saw. And when questioned again, she didn't mention the Cecil in her statement. So likely because she knew the woman that she saw was not Elizabeth Short. But anyway, so Robert said he dropped off Elizabeth at the Biltmore, where he said Elizabeth was going to meet her sister who was visiting from Boston that afternoon. By some accounts, staff members of the Biltmore recalled seeing Elizabeth using the lobby telephone, and shortly after that, she was allegedly seen by a few people at the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge at 754 Oliver Street, which was less than a half a mile away from the Biltmore. 
The last verified sighting, though, of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short was on January 9, 1947, inside the Biltmore Hotel lobby. Most witnesses claim she was really last seen leaving the hotel, walking towards like the sidewalk, possibly heading towards the cocktail lounge. But sadly, that is the last known sighting of Elizabeth alive. At around 10 a.m. on January 15, 1947, Betty Bersinger was pushing her daughter in a stroller through Leemert Park in South Los Angeles when she said something caught her eye. According to the witness, she saw what she thought was a mannequin at first. But if you're a true crime lover, you've heard that before. Betty Bersinger said when she got closer, she realized it was a naked female body severed at the waist, and she had gashes carved from each side of her mouth. Betty rushed to a neighbor's house to call 911. As soon as the Los Angeles Police Department got the call, several divisions flooded the scene. And somehow, local reporters and news media found out at the same time. Some have said that reporters were even on the scene before any of the LAPD, which is disturbing. I'm sorry. Now, I'll go ahead and say that medical examiners used fingerprints from the body to identify the victim. And it was, in fact, Elizabeth Ann Short. And her body was severely mutilated, including severed at the waist, like I mentioned, but the body was also drained of blood, which made the skin color super white, like almost translucent. Bystanders and reporters on the scene pointed out how shocking her skin color was compared to her jet black hair. Now, we will get into the autopsy report and everything here soon, but I want to go over more of how her body was found and the scene surrounding it. So, the body had apparently been washed by the killer. It was clear because there was no trace of blood on the body whatsoever, which already told investigators that she had been killed somewhere else before being dumped in Lemur Park. Her face had been slashed from the corners of her mouth to her ears, creating an effect known as the Glasgow smile or the Joker smile if you're not familiar with the other term. She had several cuts on her thighs and breasts where entire portions of her skin had been sliced away. The lower half of her body was positioned a foot away from the upper half and some of her intestines had been tucked neatly under the lower half of her body, specifically under her buttocks. Her body appeared to have been posed with her hands over her head, her elbows bent at right angles, and her legs appeared to be spread apart. Now, detectives found a couple of different suspicious items near her body, one being a heel print on the ground amid some tire tracks and a cement sack containing watery blood that had presumably been used to transport her body to this vacant lot that it was found in. So let's get into the autopsy report, which was really telling and it makes it hard for me to under not understand like how they haven't solved this thing already because everything that was done to this poor woman was done clearly by someone who had a serious medical history, even surgical knowledge. But again, we'll get into theories later. So an autopsy of Elizabeth's body was performed on January 16th, 1947 
by medical examiner Frederick Newbar, a Los Angeles County coroner. And before we dive into the report, I'll add that she was identified after her fingerprints were sent to the FBI via sound photo, which is basically an early fax machine. They were able to match the fingerprints to Elizabeth from the fingerprints taken at her 1943 arrest that I mentioned earlier. Newbar's autopsy report stated that Elizabeth was 5 foot 5 inches tall, weighed 115 pounds, and had light blue eyes, brown hair, and badly decayed teeth, which being in the dental field, it hurts to hear that, and it's also a little confusing because your teeth don't just decay overnight. Something had to have happened to basically make them like that. But there were ligature marks on her ankles, her wrists, and neck, and, quote, an irregular laceration with superficial tissue loss on her right breast. The medical examiner also noted superficial lacerations on the right forearm, left upper arm, and the lower left side of her chest. The body had been completely cut in half using a technique taught in the 1930s called a hemicorporectomy. Did that sound convincing? I have no idea if that's pronounced right. Look, if you came to this podcast thinking that you're going to get words pronounced correctly, I hate to disappoint you, but that ain't happening here. (laughs) Yeah, so I had no clue what that was either, obviously. The Google definition is a radical surgery in which the body below the waist is amputated, which we could probably guess. However, it also says that this removes the legs, the genitalia, internal and external, urinary system, pelvic bones, anus, and rectum. As of 2009, only 66 of these procedures had been reported, and this is mainly done to treat spreading cancers of the spinal cord or pelvic bone. I add that in there to say whoever did this was either taught how to do it or had a history of performing this procedure. The autopsy report noted very little bruising along the incision line, suggesting it had been performed after death. There was another gaping laceration measuring over four inches long from her belly button down to her private part area. The lacerations on either side of her face were noted as well, as well as mention of bruising on the front and right side of her scalp with a small amount of bleeding basically towards the top of her forehead, consistent with blows to the head. There were fibers found on her body as well. The fibers were tested and it was determined they came from a cocoa brush indicating that the killer physically scrubbed her body clean with a brush. The cause of death was determined to be hemorrhaging from the lacerations to her face and the shock from blows to the head and face. And if this wasn't all bad enough, it was also noted on the autopsy report that there were signs of rape as well. Samples were taken from the body testing for presence of sperm, but the results came back negative. Now, as I mentioned, the press caught wind of the murder very quickly. It didn't take long for the media to start reporting every promiscuous detail they could about Elizabeth Short. The media was downright horrible to this poor woman. Right around the time the body was discovered, a crowd of passerbys and reporters started gathering, which it's like, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to see that? I know I wouldn't. I I didn't want to see the crime scene photos that I've had to see. It didn't take long for Elizabeth's family to find out what had happened, 
But again, it was a reporter from Los Angeles Examiner that broke the news. They actually called Elizabeth's mom pretending that Elizabeth had won a beauty contest, like a low-life piece of garbage. And they basically asked a bunch of questions about Elizabeth's life, and her mom gave many details about her daughter. And after getting all the details they wanted, they told her that, oh yeah, your daughter has actually been murdered, and her corpse had been dismembered. And that was it. That's how Elizabeth's mom found out about her daughter's death. It's disgusting and infuriating. I'm sure you feel the same. But it really only gets worse for her in the media because it didn't take long for the press to brand her as some sort of tramp. And a false rumor circulated that she was a prostitute. But that was proven to be false, like I said, which I have to try to tell myself that this was a different time back then. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it okay. But that's the kind of the way women were viewed at times if they weren't married. It was ridiculous but it was just different times and that's a whole story a whole nother podcast a whole a whole different podcast genre that you can find somewhere else but I won't dwell on it here today not too much anyways (laughs) now there's mixed reports of where she actually got the nickname the Black Dahlia there was a movie out at the time called the Blue Dahlia and supposedly the press referenced that movie when Related to this story because she was as beautiful as a flower, but with black hair. Plus the word black relating to the darkness surrounding her story. So now let's get into the investigation. I mean, as huge and as widely publicized as this case was, you would think this thing would have easily been solved. And some believe it has, which we'll get into. It's really unclear where Elizabeth was from January 9th when Robert Manley dropped her off at the Biltmore up until the 15th when her body was found. However, there were a couple possible sightings of her. On January 12th, a hotel manager said he saw a woman matching her description, saying she was with a man, and they had checked into a hotel room as Mr. and Mrs. Barnes. It was never confirmed that this was Elizabeth. Then a female officer said she saw a woman that looked like Elizabeth that night before she was found dead. She said the woman approached her and told her she was scared of someone. The officer escorted her back to the bar and left the woman in the company of two men and a woman. Now, I'll say that story was kind of shoved in an article somewhere, really short and sweet. I'm sure the officer kind of did what she's supposed to do, like kind of make sure she left her with the right people. She probably left her with some friends or something along one of those lines. I doubt she just threw her back into the arms of somebody that she was scared of. Um, but there's not much detail there, just so you know. The following week after Elizabeth's death, police were kind of just making their rounds, doing their due diligence, tracking down people that last saw her, things like that. But On January 21st, a person claiming to be Elizabeth's killer called the office of James Richardson. He was the editor of the LA Examiner, and he was congratulating the editor on the newspaper's coverage of the case. And he stated that he planned on eventually turning himself in, but not before allowing police to pursue him further. He went on to tell the editor to, quote, expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Some murderers and serial killers will stay close to the crime, meaning they will either taunt the local media, which we've seen before, 
or taunt investigators, which we've seen before, claiming to be the killer and bragging about how they haven't been caught. And in some cases, I'm sure the real killer, but in most cases, it's just a horrible prank by somebody who's bored and wants some sort of attention. False confessions happen all the time as well, so you kind of have to keep that in the back of your head. However, on January 24th, a manila envelope was discovered by a U.S. postal worker. The envelope was addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers with individual words that had been cut out and pasted from newspaper clippings. But on the front of the envelope was a message that said, quote, Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. Inside the envelope, investigators find Elizabeth Short's birth certificate, some business cards, photographs, and names written on a piece of paper, and an address book with the name Mark Henson embossed on the cover. And that wasn't all. The package had been cleaned with gasoline, similar to Elizabeth's body, which tells police the package was in fact sent from the killer. Now, the sender didn't do a great job of cleaning the package like they had hoped, I'm sure, because there were several partial fingerprints on the package that police collected um, and sent to the FBI for testing. However, the prints were compromised in transit, so they were never able to actually be analyzed. Supposedly, on the same day the letter was received, a handbag and a black suede shoe were reported to have been seen on top of a garbage can in an alleyway about two miles away from where Short's body was found. The items were recovered by police, but they had also been wiped clean with gasoline, destroying any potential evidence or fingerprints. On January 26th, another letter arrived. This time, there was a handwritten note that read, quote, here it is. Turning in Wednesday, January 29th at 10 a.m. Had my fun at police, Black Dahlia, the Avenger. The letter included a location as well. So come Wednesday morning, a slew of police made their way to the location that was given on the letter. And they waited for this supposed killer to show up. Sadly, he never did. But a few days later, another note was sent to police, again with newspaper clipped words, spelling out, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. Now, I don't fully understand this. I don't know if they did or not. I, I don't know what deal he could have been talking about. I found one site that was dedicated to dissecting each letter. And they determined that this was likely a, quote, dummy letter that supposedly held a hidden message, which I don't even want to say it because many people have stated it's not true, but there's a lot of speculation and false reports in this case. So here it is. Supposedly, the hidden message says, I, Ed, killed the Dahlia in a hotel at 300 East Washington. Now, this website that I found that dove into his hidden message went into the backstory of this building and the state of the building at the time of Elizabeth's murder. We don't have to do that here, and we don't have time for that, to be honest. Um, the whole site is also just hard to read and follow. I'll have to link it in the show notes if you're interested, but basically it was the Hirsch Apartments building. It was considered remote from downtown LA, Long Beach, and Hollywood, but it was walking distance from the Biltmore Hotel where Elizabeth was last seen. 
Now, I didn't see anybody named Ed on the suspect list that I found, and there were 24 people on that list, but I'll go over the main suspects in part two. And after I spent like an hour looking at this one website, I ended up finding another site that stated that the one I was just talking about was actually, or supposedly, put out by the actual killer to shift attention off of themselves. Not even sure who they were thinking the killer was, but it it would make sense a little bit. This site is a little erratic. It's a little confusing. It's hard to follow. So it wouldn't be surprising, but I'll link it in the show notes for you to see. So on March 14th, an apparent suicide note written on a small piece of paper was found tucked inside a shoe amongst a pile of men's clothing right next to the ocean on Breeze Avenue in Venice, California, which the area where Elizabeth's body was found was about 20 to 30 minutes inland from where the suicide note was, just to give you a little perspective. So this apparent suicide note said, to whom it may concern, I have waited for police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that, or this. Sorry, Mary. And for those of you that haven't seen that note or haven't looked at it, it's bizarre because it, it kind of looks like it's signed by Mary. It says, sorry, comma, Mary. So I kind of played around with this in my head for a minute and I went down a dark hole. Mary, the only Mary in this story that we know is the arresting officer when she got her DUI who took her in and they apparently made a great bond. Apparently Elizabeth and her talked for a long time after she moved back to Florida and before she moved back to California. and But I didn't see anybody really playing with that as an option for the killer. I don't know why it would be, but again, the only Mary in this story that we know of is Mary, the police officer who arrested her in the DUI. So, just a thought. I'm going to try to find some more information on her if I can, but I won't dwell on that too much here today. So the pile of clothes was first seen by a beach caretaker who reported it to a lifeguard by the name of John Dillon. John immediately notified the LAPD, specifically Captain L.E. Christensen. The clothes found with the note included a coat, trousers that were blue herringbone tweed, a brown and white Y shirt, white jockey shorts, tan socks, and tan moccasin leisure shoes, size 8. The clothes gave no clue about the identity of their owner. From what I understand, there were no markings or anything on the clothes that identified where they could have come from or who they could have belonged to. So we kind of need to get into who could have done this, right? I mean, that's really all the information we have on the actual investigation and like the facts, I guess, in the investigation. So obviously their first suspect was red manley or robert manley since he was the last known person to have seen her he was the married salesman who went on the trip with elizabeth and who dropped her off at the biltmore and awkward enough for him lapd and a couple of reporters went to his home and his wife answers 
the door, reportedly holding their three-month-old baby. Police were able to rule him out as a suspect pretty quickly because he had a pretty solid alibi. So, they moved on to their second suspect, which was Mark Hansen, who would then be their prime suspect because of his name being engraved on the address book that supposedly the killer sent in the envelope of Elizabeth's belongings. Mark was a wealthy local nightclub and theater owner and someone who was friends with Elizabeth and someone who lent a house to her so she could stay with friends. It was either his house or a house he owned separate from the one he lived in. There were mixed reports on that. According to some reports, he was one he was one that confirmed the purse and shoe found in the alleyway belonged to Elizabeth, which would be a little odd to point out if you weren't involved, but that doesn't make him a murderer. However, Anne Toth, Elizabeth's friend and roommate at the time, told investigators that Elizabeth had recently re- rejected sexual advances from Mark and she was the one who suggested it was a motive to kill her. Now, one of my favorite true crime podcasts that I've mentioned a few times before True Crime Garage covered this case a few years ago and they had a guy on and I can't remember his name now but he was big into this case like spent years covering it trying to dissect it and things like that. He actually did a phone interview with Ann Toth and he said that she was very emotional when talking about Elizabeth and it was hard for her to talk about. However, when he brought up Mark Hansen, her emotion went from sad to bitter He said she instantly said she knew, quote, damn well he had something to do with it. Whoever did it was connected to him. Now, supposedly, Elizabeth had called Mark from San Diego on January 8th, which would make him one of the last few people to have spoken to her. Mark was one of two people that showed up at the police station when news broke that Elizabeth was murdered, the other being his friend, Anne. Both made statements that same day. The L.A. County District Attorney's public files indicate that Mark made contradictory statements to authorities about the nature of his conversation with Elizabeth on the 8th. Mark Hansen was also linked to three other suspects, which of whom had medical history and were doctors. Dr. Patrick O'Reilly, Dr. M. M. Schwartz, and Dr. Arthur Fott. Now, Buzz Williams, a retired detective with the Long Beach Police Department, wrote an article for the LBPD newsletter called The Rap Sheet in 2000 on Elizabeth Short's murder. Buzz's father, Richard Williams, and his friend, Con Keller, were both members of the L.A. team investigating the case. Keller believed Mark Hansen was the killer and said Mark was Swedish and had spent some time at Sweden's Medical Surgical School which would explain the precise dissection of Elizabeth's body. Now, this Con Keller also mentions a possible cover-up going on in the LAPD because he said that Mark Hansen would host these elaborate parties at his Hollywood home and members of the LAPD would attend, members including Chief Thad Brown and his brother, Finest Brown, who was one of the lead detectives on the Elizabeth Short case. Buzz Williams mentioned that Mark owned a Ford Lincoln Mercury car lot on Hollywood Boulevard, and his LAPD friends were later coincidentally driving around in brand new Lincoln cars. 
Mark Hansen died of natural causes in 1964. No charges were ever brought against him, and he had no criminal record. LAPD Police Chief William Wharton told the LA Examiner that there was an absolutely no case against Mark Hansen. Now, that is not the end of the Black Dahlia story. There is so much more to get into. There are so many more suspects and rabbit holes we could go down. However, this is the end of part one of the story. I'll be back here next week to dive deeper into our suspects, to cover more recent updates on the case, and give you my theories on the murder of Elizabeth Short. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Go ahead and head over to the podcast Instagram page to give me your thoughts or theories on the case. I also want to know if you've ever heard about this case before or not. It's such an old one, but it's one of the most popular killed cases in my opinion as well. So I am dying to know who all hasn't heard about it. So go leave me a comment on the Instagram post for today's episode and let me know. But that'll do it for me this week. I'll be back here next week for part two of The Black Dahlia. Until then, enjoy some horror movies, pumpkin patches, and go ahead and start buying that Halloween candy. And oh yeah, stay safe. Bye.